Well, welcome back, everybody. Glad you're with us this morning. Uh, we are, I just want to take a few minutes out of your day to kind of stimulate your thinking. As Bill said, we're, we're about, of course, engaging the heart. And during worship, we are able to express our, our feelings, our emotions, our, our allegiance to the Lord in worship. And we come together as a group to meet one another, encourage one another, and then to be kind of inspired by his word um, to, to help reframe our thinking. This morning, we are in a new series. It's called uh, Transformation, How to Change for the Better. I call it the big T, right? Transformation. Everybody wants to know how to change, right? And uh, as uh, Bill said, it's really how to change for good, which I really like. Change for good. I want to change for good. I want it to be done. And if you leave out a no, it's change for God. So really, transformation is about how to change for God. Um, how to bring about that kind of change that, um, that will last a lifetime. And what we know about transformation, of course, is that um, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. You can't change overnight. Nothing good happens simply by uh, a, a one-time experience or uh, a one-time kind of commitment. It's something you do over and over and over and over again. It's something you devote yourself to. And transformation is that way. As we looked at last week, if you haven't listened to that message, I encourage you to go online and listen to it because that was the foundation. And the foundation comes out of Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, that in order to bring about great change, you need a foundation. And the foundation of all change is a surrender. You've got to surrender yourself. Um, you can't be fighting against it. You have to be willing. To, I, I surrender. I'm in. I'm all in. I'm going to bring about that change. And then it's about rethinking, as we talked about in Romans chapter 12, um, the surrendering of our hearts, and then, of course, the um, rethinking, reshaping, renewing of our minds. Now, where do we go from here? All change requires four things, and here they are. Here's the four things, and over the next four weeks, we're going to look at all four of these. I'm going to introduce this one, and then we're going to have uh, G, uh, Taylor, and I think Bill and James are all going to participate, and so you're going to get their perspective as well, so not just my perspective, and here they are. If you want to bring about change, whether you are a follower of God's Word or whether you believe something else, if you're a business person, or it doesn't really matter. Here's the four things that are absolutely critical for whether you're a young person in high school or uh, an older person. Here's the four things. You got to believe something different. It's about a belief system. Second of all, you got to belong. You got to become, uh, you got to belong to a group of people that adhere to this, that live this out in order to develop this skill and this lifestyle. It's about association. But the third thing is about becoming something different on the inside. And then finally, you've got to bear fruit. You've got to bear the fruit, which is the, 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 the evidence of what it is that you believe. Now you live in it, you're living it out. So those are the four things. You've got to believe something. You've got to belong. You've got to become. And you also have to bear fruit. So we'll look at these four aspects. This morning, we're going to look at belief. Belief's really, really important because belief tells you uh, what you're becoming, your belief system, what you believe about life and about yourself 
is self-prophetic. It's, it's, what, it's what you are literally going to live into. And so you've got to understand that it, your thinking is really important. Let me, let me illustrate it. People believe the wackiest things. I go to swimming in the morning. And when I go to swimming in the morning, I turn on uh, a, 6.40 a.m. And I'm, I'm ready for the news. I want to hear what's going on. The problem is George Norrie's on. He's been on all night. And George Norrie runs coast to coast. And it's, he is interviewing people, call-ins, talking about the paranormal. So they're really wacky things that they're talking about. UFOs, aliens, who shot John F. Kennedy, conspiracy theories. So all the paranormal, oh, and ghost stories. And it's just, it, so I listen to these stories and I listen to these people. It's the craziest thing. Like these people are up all night talking about things you don't normally talk about. And now I understand where aliens come from and the UFOs and who shot John F. Kennedy. I've got all that straight. And we might think, well, this is like silly. This is really silly. Who cares whether they believe in this stuff or not? It really doesn't change things. Let me go a step deeper. So there are these crazy people out there. But let me go deeper. Two particular years stand out to me in my lifetime in recent history. And the first one is 1993 in Waco, Texas. Something significant happened, probably before some of you were even born. But in 1993, there was a cult, a Christian cult. The definition of a cult is people believing wacky things. And they call it Christian, but it's not because it doesn't follow what the Bible teaches. It's off somewhere. It's really off. And it's a gathering of people, and they're committed to this strange belief, and it was called the Branch Davidian, and they were in Waco, Texas, and they had a compound, and a guy named David Koresh took over. Long story short, you can watch the documentary, but David Koresh basically led all these people astray and armed himself and all this ammunition and weapons, and then the ATF and the FBI and the local police came in because all sorts of things were happening there that were illegal, polygamy, uh, there was um, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff going on. And so they went in to investigate and they, and they uh, opened fire and four ATF agents died and it took 51 days and it was a total disaster. And by the time they went in, all 79 people, including several, many, many of them children, died as a result of David Koresh arming himself with these people because of his belief system. It, it really happened. It's crazy, but it happened. What's even crazier to me is that happened in 1993, but when you think about it, why in the world do these people not refer back to 1978 when Jim Jones did the very same thing? And in Guyana, in South America, he took over 900 people with him and lived on a compound and taught them these crazy things, armed themselves the same way, and... Uh, Jim Jones led 900 people to drink cyanide Kool-Aid and end their lives. And, we, and the world was astounded. Like, what in the world just happened? How in the world does this stuff happen? It's because a belief system gets ingrained into a person's mind and they begin to live it out and they follow it. That's why it's so important for us 
to understand what it is we believe. Now, what is it that we believe? What is the basis of our belief system? I'm going to give it to you. It's out of John chapter 1. I think John begins his gospel brilliantly. All four gospels are brilliant because they describe the life of Christ. But the way John does it is very unique. John is building a worldview based upon Jesus. Okay, this is really important. This is the foundation of what John's church and John's followers would believe about the creation, about the beginning, about the purpose of the world, about all those things. Here it is. So he's going to give it to us right here. Um, John chapter 1, in the beginning. So John takes us all the way back to the very, very beginning of time, the back to creation. So if you want to have a foundational system that really works, go back to the beginning. You've got to go back to the beginning because anything, anything new is based upon the old, what already happened. And here's what happened. In the beginning was the word. We don't know who the word is yet, but we know that there's this word is it a spoken word? Is it a, is it a concept? What is it? We don't know yet, but in the beginning was this word. But we know that the word was with God. Well, God was in the beginning because God created all things. It sure sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created. That's how Genesis 1 begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the word and God are the same thing. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him. Now this word has become somebody, a him, a person. You notice the transition? You notice what's going on here? And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. So in the beginning was God. And the God was the word, and this word comes forth and brings light into darkness. It sure sounds like the Old Testament, doesn't it? It sounds like the beginning of creation, that there was darkness over the, over the earth, and then light came into the, in, and, start, and, and, and illumined the world, and God brought creation through the light and separated the light from darkness. So John is... It's a recapitulation. John is taking the, the, the Old Testament creation story and showing us this still is the primary understanding of where we came from and what our purpose is from. And it's through this word that brings light in the midst of darkness. Then he goes on. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he was a witness to testify about the light. So that all might believe through him, he was not the light. He came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were, with, were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were not born, not of the blood, of the, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then John goes, and the word became flesh. Ah, we're getting somewhere. The word is the light from the beginning that illumines the darkness, and that word becomes flesh, literally incarnate. The word becomes human flesh. 
What was from the beginning, God himself becomes flesh. We're seeing the development of the story of the entire Bible, which is the story about the one who becomes flesh, Jesus Christ. We know it is because it says he dwelt among us and we saw his glory to be only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified him and cried out saying, this is the one whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I and I existed before him. For of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. See, this light that illumines the darkness brings grace into the world. And therein lies the story of the Bible. There is the whole story of redemption. It is the story we call the gospel, the good news. It's the story of Jesus Christ coming into the world. And it is exactly the same story of creation. And here's the story, and here's the connection, and here's the whole thing. The foundation of your belief is that God created the world. The problem is, in the creation of the world, darkness fell back over the world because of the hardness of people's hearts. And the perfect creation that God created was no longer perfect. And we now live in an imperfect world because of that darkness. But guess what? The light comes back. The light that was in the beginning has now come back in the person of Jesus. God sends his son and he offers us life. Light is life. And in offering that to us, he offers it through grace, his life for ours. Restoring creation as God originally intended. It's the restoration of the creation of the world. And I want you to understand something. What we have often done, there's a problem, and there's the problem in the world, but there's also a problem, I think, among uh, Christian churches and what's happened in um, recent years is that we have changed the gospel from a gospel of recreation to a personal gospel where we are uh, in, a, in a kind of a dual sense. We are here, but we're not going to be here long. And we're going to go somewhere else. And the way you may have heard the gospel and how it's often presented is not the way John's presenting it, but it's in a way that says the world has gone bad and we receive Christ and we get forgiveness of sins and therefore one day we get to leave this world and go to another world. And so we've had that mindset. And the problem with that mindset is that what John says that God is doing is he's bringing Christ back to restore the world and we get to stay in that world and enjoy that new created world. And he will finish that when he returns again. And so what God is doing is not taking us out of here, but restoring us in here. And that's a different gospel. It's the same gospel because it's Christ and he's redeeming us. He's restoring us. But we understand the fuller purpose of the gospel. And therefore, the gospel changes us because what you believe you become. Either you have the mentality that I'm out of here because I get something and I'm saved and I'm headed to heaven. 
and our mentality is just trying to get there from here. Or you begin to see that God is restoring the soul. He's restoring who you are in creation. Let me tell you, if there is ever a message for postmoderns, this is the message of the gospel. I'm going to give you the three movements of the gospel from this passage and then illustrate it, and then we're done. But before I do that, let me just indicate to you there's a second problem. The first problem is the way we think about the gospel and reshaping our thinking about the fact that God has put us here, recreated us, given us all of creation, restored us by grace. We are now the light of the world, bringing salvation, which is the restoration of all of God's kingdom, all of God's creation, back to its original condition. But let me, let me talk about the world today. Postmoderns are, are so focused on restorative justice, are we not? We are focused on solving the problems of the world, whether it's social injustice, whether it's racism, whether it's intense poverty, whatever the issue might be, we are focused on that, helping save the world. These are the big ideas of the world today, and, and, and people are devoted to trying to solve those problems. And one of the big problems that we see is that it's not those things, it's something within us that needs to change. And when that something within us changes, then all these things get addressed. And that's a message for the postmodern world. Where is God in the midst of all this suffering? Why is God not solving all these problems? You might have friends that ask the question, well, if God's a loving God, if God's restoring the world, then why isn't it restored? Or why is there still evil? Why is there still sickness? Why are there still all these problems? There are these problems until Christ comes to fully restore the kingdom. The earth gets restored. But in the meantime, he is working it out through us we get the opportunity to play a role in the full restoration of the kingdom of God, which is his creation. And that's our mandate through the gospel. And, and postmoderns want to hear an answer, and here's the answer. All of these things happen as a result of what Christ does in our human hearts. So let's dive into this. Let's look at it. Let me give you one example, poverty. You know poverty is a huge issue. It's been a gigantic issue for many, many years. But, um, and we want to solve this problem. Today, we have about 9.2% that live in the world today with utter poverty, like under $2 a day kind of poverty. Under $2 a day they live. And it's about 719 million people. And you may say, well, out of 7 billion people, that's not very many, right? It's just a small number. In 1850, it was 74% of the world was in utter poverty. So we've made a lot of progress. We're getting there. We really are. We're seeing restoration. We're seeing that happen. But it's, it's not fast enough because if you look, dive deeper into some of these countries, India, the country of India, 99.9% .9 of the country lives on less than $30 a day. 94% of China lives on less than $30 a day. There's still a lot of poverty out there. It's an issue that people want to solve. And there's this darkness that's settled over our world and we want to see the light come through. And Jesus brings the light, which is the light of all men, 
and he offers grace, and in the process of that, transforms hearts that address the major issues. And poverty can be solved. The reason why poverty hasn't been solved is not because we don't have food, it's because of the evil forces of people and governments and the inequality and all the other reasons, power and control and authority, it's within the heart of the human being. So how do we solve this? Here it is. Here's the answer to the postmodern world. Here's the answer. Number one, it's about a word, a logos. It's about a person. Number two, it's about a light. And number three, it's about grace. See that? The word, the light, and the grace. All three of them are in John's gospel, John's presentation. A, a word, a light, and a grace. First of all, let's look at the word. The word is literally logos. And in Greek culture, what they believed when they read this, when the Greek world read what John said, they were thinking in their mind, ah, he's referring to an idea, a philosophy, a solution to life. Here it is. Let me give you the argument. And what, G what John is saying, it's not an argument. It's a person. The word, the logos, is God himself. And he's offering himself as the solution to the world. Because he created all things, he understands why things have been created, and he's come back to bring that knowledge back to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Logos was with God and was God. Do you see that? And so from the very beginning of time, we understand Colossians chapter 113 is absolutely right. Paul says, referring back to this, he rescued us. Who did? Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. And is, did it through his beloved son, through the forgiveness of sins. Later, he's going to talk about Jesus is the image, the perfect image of the invisible God who created all things. He's referring back to this, that this is a person. C.K. Chesterton is a great writer, and he once said that the world is full of magic. Therefore, there must be a magician. All you have to do is look at the world and see all the magical things in the world today, mysteries, things that happen, and we can't explain them. There has to be a magician behind them. And God is presenting himself as the magician. Um, that's number one. It starts with a person. But number two, John moves his argument from the Logos, the person that is Jesus, who becomes, who is God, who is now announced in creation and in the world today. He goes on to say that this Logos, this person, is the light. And he says this, he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in darkness. The idea is the light illumines the darkness of our souls. And in our postmodern generation, what we don't realize is the problems of the world today is because of the darkness of our souls. It's not that, that the world... That God, is in, that God is doing these things. He's, he's, he's moving in such a way to bring about darkness. The darkness comes from our own souls, and we don't even recognize it. And the light illumines that. It, light, it lightens us to the reality of our problem. 
See, John's building a case for the gospel. The second point is the light illumines the darkness in our hearts. Romans 3, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Before Paul says that, in Romans 3, verse 12, he says all of, there, there, there's no one righteous, not, no one, no one seeks after God. Paul makes this grand argument that the entire world has turned away from God. Not one person in the world can say, I don't need Jesus because I've been illumined by the light without him and I'm perfect and I've accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. Paul's saying no one has done that. All have fallen short. But the reality is we just don't realize it. Someone once said this, and I don't know if it's true. Bob Hope was a great comedian, and he would entertain the troops overseas and gave a, gave a lot of his life to helping people and make people laugh. And I don't know whether this really happened. I could, I've never been able to verify it, but I think it, it illustrates the point. Someone once came to him, supposedly, and said, Bob, why are you not a Christian? And you know what his answer was? Until you show me a Christian that has done more for me than I have done for humanity, I will not be a Christian. And what he was saying in that, which is very subtle, is I have done a lot, and I've done a lot of good. And on the basis of that, I don't need Christianity. I don't need the light. Because I have done what I need to do in order to prove that the light shines in me. And what he didn't realize, even in that statement, was a statement of great pride, of arrogance, of like literally, seriously, you think you've done more for the world than anybody else? Have you heard of Mother Teresa, William Wilberforce? There's a lot of really good people out there that have done a lot of really good things. But to be able to say that, you have to have a lot of pride. Let me tell you a story. I've only told the story um, once before, I think once or twice, maybe twice. And um, I really felt like I'm motivated. What I do is motivated by the love of God. So I'm motivated to do really good things because I love God. Um, but I also have a dark side. And it's the dark side of me that says, what's in it for me? I love Jesus, but what's in it for me? And I, you know, and I have... And early in my Christian life, in high school, I, I didn't really feel like I was completely, totally selfless, that there was always an ulterior motive. Like, how is this going to better me, right? So I had a van in high school, and I bought this van in order to move furniture. So there were all these interior decorators all over that needed couches and chairs and things that were reupholstered, delivered to private homes. And so I became the delivery boy, and I had this van, and I would drive the, drive the furniture to, and I would get paid. It was a lot of money. It was really a great job. I remember one time I was delivering, and I forgot to take the person that I was supposed to take with me, and I was delivering a full-size couch to Malibu, and it was up these long stairs, and when I got there, I looked up and saw these stairs that just looked like they never ended. And then I looked back in the van and there was a full-size couch in it and it was me. And so I took all the, the pillows out and I literally put it on my back and carried a full-size couch up the stairs. There you go. There's my claim to fame. I did it. Got the thing in the house 
and, uh, and then heard about it the next day from the interior decorator. Like, what in the world are you doing? But anyway, so I did this, and, and I, I made a lot of money. But here, let me tell you the story. The story is about a family. And I got a call because they knew I had a van that I delivered furniture. Would you help this family? There was a, it was a, a family that just lost their home in Gardena, and they were moving to an apartment. And I said, sure. Worked out a fee, and I, I went to work, and I spent all day, and we got them relocated in the apartment. And they said, just hang on. We're going to go get your check. They went up the elevator in this apartment building to go get the check, and I remained in the van waiting. And then something hit me. What if you just drove off? And didn't get paid. And I just had this thought. I don't know where it came from. I just had this thought, I'm going to just do it. It's crazy. I'm just going to do it. And I did it. Put the car in reverse, drove out of the driveway, and I was off. And they didn't know how to contact me. And I never heard from them ever again. And I just did it. And what I realized that moment in my life, and it took me quite a while to figure it out, was that it released within me a light in me that I had not seen before. In the midst of darkness, of even the subtle parts of darkness in my own heart, of being motivated by my own self-interest, in that moment, a light began to brightly shine. And that's what Jesus does. He brings the light into the world to reveal the darkness in our hearts, to bring about a change in the areas of our lives that need it the most. That's the gospel. Now, how does it all happen? Well, Paul goes on, or John goes on with the argument about the light and how they didn't recognize the light and they were in darkness. They liked the darkness more than they liked the light. But then at the end, it says the word becomes flesh. Jesus is the incarnate son of God. He becomes flesh and dwells among us and why? The question is, why does John need to point out that Jesus has to become a person? Because here it is. He goes on to say, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace. Jesus is the Word, the personal God who comes into the world, who illumines us with light so that we are, our, our darkness is revealed and then offers us grace. And notice what it says. John testifies it. But then it says this, for of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Moses came and gave us the law. Jesus came and gave us grace. There's the gospel. Point number three, the grace forgives. And it's all done. It's covered. The grace is unmerited favor. Grace is this beautiful thing that God does sacrificially for us on our behalf. It's a beautiful story. It's unconditional love. And there it is. Um, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this grace? What do we do with this light? What do we do with this personal Jesus? Well, Here's where I want to end this morning. There's the gospel in three, three small movements. God personally comes into the creation to restore. He illumines our darkness and he offers us grace, which is a sacrifice, so that we no longer have to live by the demands of the law. I was watching a movie 
Denise and I watched a movie recently. It was called The Mustang. Came out in like 2019. A French producer wrote it. And it's a true, it's, it's based on a true story, which is the, this, um, this inmate program in prisons in a few places around the country where inmates are able to help um, rehabilitate and break Mustang horses, wild Mustang horses. You seen the movie? It's a remarkable story of an inmate who joins in this program and participates in the breaking of a, a wild stallion that's brought into the pen, kind of brought into the compound, and the, the inmates work with these horses, and the goal is to is to break them. Well, this man—it's not a true story, but it's a, it's a story of this man named Roland Coleman, and um, um, he was serving, I don't know whether it was a life sentence, but a very long sentence. He had just come out of 12 years of, of solitary confinement. He's now training this horse. He's trying to break this wild Mustang. At the same time, his daughter comes to visit him. He's in prison because he has beaten his wife close to death. And he's left his daughter now alone on the outside. And she's pregnant. She's going to have a child. And he doesn't want anything to do with her. But through the process of working with this, ho this, this horse, he calls Marquis, and it's one horse, it's a Mustang that he's trying to break, that he befriends, it softens his heart. And now he wants a relationship with his daughter, and he invites his daughter back to, to visiting uh, ours, and in his own ways, uh, in his own way, he apologized. He is now sobbing. This is a very hardened criminal. This is a man who can't get along with other people and even says, I, want to, I don't want to be around other people. And yet, in the midst of this process of breaking a horse to be tame, his heart has become broken. And he tells his daughter, you are always going to be my baby. I love you, and I one day will make it up to you. And the horse never gets broken. It's a wild horse, and the, the, someone even says, some horses are never meant to be broken. He goes back into solitary confinement. And the last scene is a beautiful scene of redemption. His daughter writes him a letter and includes a picture of his new, newly born grandson. Meet your grandson. He has restored his relationship with his daughter, but he will never be fully restored because he's still in prison. And yet something deep within him has changed. A light began to shine. And he saw redemption through this process. And it just struck me as, I think, a picture of what the gospel is doing in the world today. It's restoring people. It's restoring people back to health. It's storing relationships. It's not perfect. We don't live in a perfect world. We're all imperfect. And I think that's the beauty of the story. It's like, oh, you think he gets out and restores his relationship with his daughter and lives out on the outside and, and the horse gets tamed and all. And it's not that kind of a story. And yet in the messy details of life, something good really happened. And that's the gospel story. Let me tell you about myself. I did not grow up in the church. I grew up uh, in the secular world, and we had a lot of people, a lot of friends that um, very deeply rooted in the community that for the most part were not churchgoers. 
And so I grew up around people that did not have Christian faith. And I felt very comfortable about that. And even after becoming a Christian, uh, I did not spend all my time in Christian circles. I really enjoyed my time outside of Christian circles with my friends that did not have faith, whether it was in school, in sports, in the business world, um, hobbies, teams. And so I've really enjoyed that over my life. And I would have to say that I've really treasured those relationships with people who don't believe what I believe. I feel like I thrive in those environments. I like my friends. I'll do anything for them. They are not projects. And I want to do two things. And I think this is where the gospel has really reached me. The gospel of light that brings grace into my life is exactly what I'm offering to other people. And this is what I do. I show them the dignity that they have by honoring and showing them that God has made them unique and valuable as members of creation. It's what I want to do. It's what I live to do. I love doing that. Restoring their dignity. Not judging, restoring dignity in all people. The second thing that I do is I show them what it looks like to love God. Truly love God how I'm devoted to God, and how it's real, it's imperfect, but it's honest. Um, I want to show them how to live by God's morals and values. Not again in a prideful way, but in a humble way, because I've been changed by Christ. Um, And I think people are looking back at me and you, and they're asking one question. And here's the one question. Is what you preach for real? Is it really for real? Do you really accept all people and does your faith really change your life? That's what people are asking. And I think that's why the gospel is so important. And that's why I believe the gospel really will change us if we truly believe it. It will change the way in which we live in the created order of things in this world as God is restoring relationship and restoring lives. Good things are happening. Creation is getting restored. And it's happening through people who believe the gospel. Two questions for you as we leave. Just two questions. Think about these. It's a who question and a where. Who in your life is asking for hope? That kind of hope in this world today. Somebody you know that's dissatisfied, confused, or hurting. Who in your life is looking for that kind of hope that you can befriend? And second of all, where? Where do you see God nudging you to bring the hope of the gospel? Where? Where do you see it? In what part of creation do you feel like you can have your greatest contribution? Let's pray. We are, Father, committed to you because we're committed to your word, and your word teaches us that you um, have restored all of creation through your son Jesus, the word that has become flesh and dwelt among us. Father, I pray that we would be creation restorers in this world, that our hearts would be driven by a desire, bring dignity and hope, and 
to bring about the things of change that creation longs to be changed in. Changing inequality and diversity that has caused hate and separation among people um, to bring about a justice for all people. And Father, I pray that we would begin that work because the gospel has touched our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we move into worship, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And uh, we acknowledge that this word, this word has become flesh and he's made his home with us. And that's what we do when we take these elements, the bread and the cup. We remember that Jesus left the comfort of his home with his father and entered into the messiness of our world. And he became a light that dispels the darkness, the darkness in our heart and the darkness in our world. And these elements, because they represent the body and the blood of Jesus given to us on the cross, it opens the door to so much grace, grace for you and grace for me. So as you take these elements, remember that these are symbols. Um, it represents that last meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. Um, and they took the cup, they took the bread, and Jesus took um, a loaf of bread, he broke it, which, which was a symbol. And he passed it around to his disciples just as the trays are coming around and we take a small portion of bread that represents his body. And he said, take it, I want you to eat it. I want, I want you to make a meal of it. Um, and though this bread is small, the symbol is great. So I invite you um, to take and eat, all of you. And after that supper, he took the cup, the fruit of the vine, and he said, this, this represents my blood my shed blood which is shed on your behalf so that forgiveness of sins is assured so he invited his disciples each one to partake so I invite you together can I invite you all to stand as we finish with worship
So Lord, may this be our prayer this morning, that we build our lives on your foundation of truth and love. We believe who you say you are. We believe who you say that we are. So would you transform us, God, so that we may be the light to those around us and to the light even to ourselves. Would you light up all the corners of our hearts. We surrender to you, Lord. We give you permission to access all those places. God, would you be with us? Would you show us who you are? So we love you, God. We pray that these wouldn't just be words or lip service, God, but that you would truly take us on a journey of transformation. May it start right here, even now, God. We love you, Lord. We thank you that that is your desire to truly transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. The alarm said it. We're done. Let's go be the light, all right? Love you guys. We'll see you next week.